cross oh, comes in. White with the header. Oh, and here comes Whitehead. It's gold for Great Britain. Welcome to a new episode of Track and Ball Podcast with myself, Ellen White, and also Richard Whitehead. Now, joining us today, we have a multiple gold medalist um, where in 2012, a moment changed his life forever. Um, he went on to hold all outdoor titles, which is phenomenal in his event, Long Jump. Um, and he is a dedicated family man. He's been on numerous TV shows and also Celebrity MasterChef. He won it in 2019. We are delighted to be joined by Greg Rutherford. Hey, guys. How's it going? You guys well? Good, yeah, thank yes, you. thanks. Mate, it's a pleasure for you to, to join us on, on Track and Ball podcast. Um, oh, okay, we're really look, looking for, forward to listening to your insight uh, professionally on and off the, the track. And uh, really interested to see your insight about what it takes to be top of your game, and also the kind of the, the res uh, restraints that obviously happen in your life that have an effect on your performance. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's always a fascinating one, isn't it? I, mean, I think we, we all go into sport initially because we absolutely love sport. I was a kid that, that participated in every sport going. Um, I was obsessed with trying to find something that would work for me. Um, so I played football to a relatively high level, badminton, a bit of rugby, of course, track and field, um, and sort of settled on that one when I realised that that was the one that could probably take me to the to the sort of heights of of sport that I really, really sort of strived for. Um, and that trial and error definitely gave me a lot of good grounding and, and base work um, to take forward into track to, to, to help that journey 100%. Um, I think what we most people find, and, and it's seen often as a arrogance, selfishness, etc., within sport. But having a, a, a single-mindedness that you can really sort of back yourself. The one thing you often find is that nobody's going to tell you you're going to be the best. Nobody's going to just give it to you. It's an awful lot of hard work. And having that determination and and I guess single-mindedness rather than just arrogance, whatever else. Um, that is hugely important in order to actually give yourself that that standing and that that position to push forward, um, and making sure that you're always accountable for what you do. That that is again a, another thing that's that's huge, especially I guess maybe in, a, in an individual sport when you're in a situation where you're standing there. In my case, on as it was on a runway, um, if I haven't put in the work or I haven't done what I needed to do and the necessary steps in order to succeed it's going to be there for everybody to see because you can, in my case, go running on the runway. I'm not going to jump very far. Um, so th there's a huge mix. I mean, I think what also comes into this and, and we would have all experienced part of it. Um, there is a level of luck, not luck in the way of how hard you try or again, natural ability. It's not a flip of a coin. <laughs> no, exactly. There's definitely not that. I think luck is something that's thrown around in a way of people go, oh, I'm super lucky. Now look, was it Gary Player always said, the luckier I, uh, the, sorry, the harder I trained, the luckier I was. And, and that is true. But there's certain scenarios, for example, I was very lucky in a way that the coach that I had for the final nine years of my career, he was brought over from the States to work with me, somebody I admired hugely. And it gave me an opportunity to work with him. And by working with him, I actually had the opportunity to thrive and have the success that I had. So th those levels of luck, again, never the training side of it, never the opportunity, but actually people you meet 
certain scenarios that that come in that's definitely where the level of luck comes in i definitely mm -hmm. i saw that i saw that when when we first met in in stellenbosch i remember because um you in the same training group as obviously goldie says and and uh, scott morehouse who, who yeah. i room with a lot and um one thing that i kind of learned from because I, I i watch a lot of athletes when they train and, and, and compete and you're kind of your direction in training is very much your mindfulness is very focused on the end goal and the process to get there Absolutely. and that was very evident from when i was watching you train but also the 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 impact you have on people around you sometimes can you can take people with you or you can push people away and you can go actually that Greg's a bit of a an arrogant person isn't he look he doesn't even talk to me but then is you're in the process of of of, of that session where your coach is putting a lot of pressure on you to achieve your goals for that session because he knows that that session is going to build through that winter into obviously your season and I think that's Definitely. what's really important that, that that comes from you is all about the consistency of what you're doing yeah massively i think the one thing that when i joined dan so, so my coach for the last sort of nine years of my career was dan faff who, who again is a i mean he's a legend within the world of coaching he's he, he coached donovan bailey to become the 96 olympic champion in the 100 meters um he's coached people all the way through he's coaching johnny peacock as well obviously when, when johnny won in london we had like a, a really good group at that point um and joining Dan, one of the first things he said to me when, when we sat down and had a meeting, he said, by the time that you retire, I want you to have the equivalent of a PhD in long jump. And as mad as that sounds, I'm obviously running and jumping into a sandpit. But what he meant by that, he wanted me to be a, a scholar the whole way through. He wanted me to be asking questions, wanted me to understand. So I had the opportunity to, to develop in order to to become the best athlete I possibly could be. And equally, in, in having an American coach and, and after London down went back to America and I had to follow, it also meant that I, I would always have him there for, for competition, some training blocks as well. So I, I had to take things on. I had to be astute enough to, to understand and, and want to understand what I was doing. Um, so for me, training was something that, that, first of all, I thoroughly enjoyed. Um, but was just an opportunity to constantly be taking on information in order to give myself the best possible opportunity to go out there and, and succeed. So having that toolbox, as you were, of all the knowledge that you gained from, you know, learning about long jump, asking those questions, what what pushed you to be so consistent? Because for me and Rich, we're high-performing athletes in football in athletics and we know the pressures of performing at the highest level you know you won numerous medals you know you, you held all outdoor titles like what was that how did you get that consistency to perform at the highest level was it through that knowledge and that understanding or what was it yeah massively I, I think there's often a lot of very talented people that sadly never quite achieve what they would like to achieve and, and possibly part of that does come down to self-belief um i definitely had a lot of self-belief during my career. Um, I, I felt from a young age, I was always trying to prove people wrong because often people would be going, oh, I'll be so-and-so is better than you. You'll never quite make it. it you're not the one it, it, who's going to have that success. Um, and sort of what I touched on earlier, nobody's going to give you anything. You have to be the one that goes out there and, and grabs those opportunities. So I, I did have a lot of self-belief. I, I did, I did sort of invest heavily into my ability and talent having dan for me being one of the greatest track and field coaches in the world him telling me that yes you have the opportunity if we do things right to go out there and succeed that then gave me the belief 
And then I would look at other people when I was on the runway and, and, and I would look around and think, do you know what? I'm just as talented as you. As long as I have a good day, I can win this competition. I and then when you start, it helps, doesn't it, massively. And, it, yeah. and the crazy mm. thing is, once you start winning, first of all, winning is a, is a hugely uh, addictive thing. But, but second of all, it gives you that self-belief that actually doesn't matter what anybody else does around you, you'll still come back and you'll, you'll still manage to beat them. So there have been competitions and somebody might jump five, ten centimetres longer than me. And my response was never, oh, no, I don't think I'm going to be able to do that today. Mom was, okay, fine, let's go. I'm, I'll jump a centimetre further than you. And actually, that consistency was, was born through that. But actually, I always think I also became one of the most frustrating jumpers to jump against because it didn't matter what people did. I would this for about four or five years of my career, it, it might be the same distance I would jump and win on count back or I'd go a centimetre further. And I would really frustrate everybody around me. And I thoroughly enjoyed that, though, because mm. it's, it would have been lovely in my career to go out there and jump eight and a half metres plus every single competition. But that, that's not realistic. No. What was realistic was me being able to respond and do what yeah. I knew I could do to, to win those competitions. What, what about, so you say about people going that one centimetre further than you, you're like, yeah, I, I can do more. But what about like you personally? So say like two no jumps then what, what's your process then for that third jump? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I thrive on pressure. Um, okay. There is there's something about me. Uh, you know, this was the big thing. And actually, obviously, I'm retired. I've been retired two years now. And the one thing I miss, really, is, is just that pressure that you feel yeah. when your back's against the wall. You've got a huge crowd cheering for you. And yeah. you know, if you mess this up, that's you out. There was something yeah. about those pressure moments that I, I just lived for it. Like mm -hmm. I, I took so much more out of being under pressure than I think I did when, when I was sort of just flying and I was finding it a, a, a lot easier and just winning, yeah. turning up, winning a few competitions. So for me, but that was learned. And that's, that's a big thing. In, in 2008, which was my th first Olympics, I managed to make the final. I was, I was mm -hmm. in a really bad place. I, my yeah. granddad had just died about a week before I'd left. I woke up in the morning of the final with tonsillitis, bronchitis, and a kidney infection. So I was in a really bad way. But look, <laughs> adrenaline is one hell of a hell of a thing to have in your system. But I got into that final, and actually, I think because I wasn't quite in the right mental place where I, I could have been and had been previously, mm -hmm. I found myself unable to actually respond in that way, and and I wasn't enjoying what was going on around me. And I ended up finishing tenth, and I probably would have had a good opportunity to, to win my first medal the way that competition went. But again, I didn't have the right team around me at that point. I wasn't probably mentally in the right place. I was quite young. I was sort of just 21 or so at that time. I hadn't had the success that I, I went on to have. So as much as I had belief in my in, in the way I did things and my approach to things, um, I didn't think I'd had those experiences to really sort of draw from in order to, to actually go out there and do what I needed to do. And that's what's really important, isn't it, about making those decisions about your coach. And um, and when I, I see within our sport and obviously other sports, when there's those kind of knee-jerk decisions, yeah. it's like, that looks like the environment I want to be in without actually thinking, how is this going to work? How am I going to have a sustained relationship with this with this coach and how are they going to impact me not just on this season but on the rest of my career I I've, I see it all the time when it's like yes I know this coach is going to make me better now and you go well what do you like that coach is that the reason why you're going there 
or is it because you can see your value? And I think that's the thing that I I, I do see that is missed, that, that athletes don't see the value and see the friendship before that. Absolutely. I think the, the, the biggest, we're lucky in a way. I mean, like, like from your point of view, if a new coach is brought into a club, you're in a situation where that new coach might have a completely different philosophy, something that I guess you may not even agree with, but yeah. you, you follow it because yeah. fundamentally they're brought in to manage you. Us in track and field and in certain individual sports, I guess tennis, etc., you're in a situation where you effectively bring on your coach. So you can at any point walk away from that coach, at any point can appoint a new coach. But sadly, track and field athletes in particular don't seem to, to actually follow the process to maximise their potential. I talk about an awful lot. It's all about surrounding yourself with people. It doesn't matter if it's track and field, sport or business. For you to, to, to thrive in, in a professional world, you need to bring the right people in and, and on board around you to, to maximise what you have. And in our sport, you can do that, but a lot don't. And you're right, what, what often happens, especially in Olympic years, I've seen it so many times, athletes would go, oh God, it's Olympic year now. I've not quite done what I need to do. I'm just going to join this person now because they once had an Olympic champion in my event. I'll go give it a go. And it's a complete and utter disaster. You have to do your due diligence before you go forward in anything like this. Um, and that's something that I did with Dan. As much as I respected Dan, I knew his, his pedigree and his credentials previously. I went and sat down with him. I had a long conversation. We spoke about the fact that certain things that worked for me, what his view of me was. And <clears throat> within the first, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes, we had already agreed certain things, which was things that I was offering and training methods that I thought would work for me and things that he said. So uh, that that point, I knew 100% that I was on onto a good thing. But again, I completely respect in certain places. That's not easy to do. And actually, I, I'd, be, I'd be really interested to, to sort of know, and not obviously naming anybody, if, if there's ever been anybody that's come on, what do you do at that point? If, if there's somebody that's changing everything and it doesn't work, what do you do? Is, is there anything you can do? Yes, it's, it's a difficult one, obviously, be, being a footballer and then, you know, the people above you are bringing in a manager. Um, yeah. So it's quite challenging there. They're potentially bringing in a complete new philosophy. Um, and for me, it's like getting your head down. Obviously, you want to play. That's the main priority. And obviously, there does come like challenges of a, of a coach being more vocal, more um, diligent, more shouty, if you know what I mean. And, and, and that's not what you're used to. But it's all about adapting and developing and learning. And I think for me, I have had quite a few different coaches. And for me, it's about working hard, having conversations. What do you see? Like a bit what you're saying, like a collaboration. What yeah. do you want from me? Um, you know, this is what I give, but how in that system can can I thrive? How can I work? How can we work together for me to play? And I think that's a big thing that you said about collaboration, having those conversations, I think are really important. Absolutely. And, and also being honest with yourself, isn't it? Being yeah. honest with uh, your team about is it going is it going the right way? If you're if you're uh, if you're not going on the right path, are you brave enough to make those changes? And I see teams that are close but not honest and transparent enough. Mm -hmm. That's that's Definitely. the um, that's the that's the thing that I I see that I'd like to change if I was in a position of of power to be able to do that in the future. Which yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and do you know what? It, that that is a, that is a, a big thing. Like, look, <clears throat> sadly, in the, in the world of sport, and, I, and again, but again, I think this goes into business, whatever else. You can be friends with people, but if if they're they're not maximizing your potential, you at times you have to be honest. You have to be what people might see as harsh. 
and you have to make changes and adaptations. And, and again, during my career, I look at, I changed physios, I changed coaches, I, I changed lots of different things, friendship groups, even in the early days, because I knew if I maintained what I was in, then I would never ever have achieved what I achieved. And, and, I, and I do say genuinely, if, if I wouldn't have had the opportunity to train with Dan, I may have had some success, but without mm. question, I do not believe I would have become Olympic champion in 2012 without Dan's help. So if you go right back to the start, and then um, obviously you were a talented athlete, like you said before, um, why, were you, why were you pushed down that path of athletics when you, you, you had other opportunities in, in football and other sports, rugby, et cetera? Um, what, what, why athletics? And did you, did you always envisage, one, going to an Olympics, two, like standing there controlling 80,000 people, and then also <laughs> then standing on top of the podium in one of the most iconic days in British sport. Yeah, it's a funny old thing. Basically, I, I ended up going down the route of track and field purely because I enjoyed it more. Now, I was quite late to probably the, the sporting world, if you like. I, I wasn't sort of one of those six, seven-year-olds that you see now that was doing amazing things, whatever else. Now, I was always the, the quickest in my school, which which sort of always helped when I was a, I was a kid. Um, I didn't go to an athletics club till I was about... 12 so probably a lot later than than a lot of people um but my first love definitely was football and i loved football and i trialed at aston villa at 13 and things were were looking pretty good i came from a a history of professional footballers um generations way before i mean we're talking my great granddad who was the very famous footballer was very famous footballer 100 years ago so i mean it's a long time ago but again that had been the messy of his time right well, I mean, he was up there. He, was up there. he, 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 had, he had a good, very good... Well, he's still the oldest player to ever play for Arsenal, is, is my great granddad. So, You're not an Arsenal uh, fan, are you, Greg? I'm not an Arsenal fan, no. no. Thank goodness. No, please, don't, please don't I'm say to unfollow you. Please don't. I'm not... Well, this is the thing. This is what I don't... I don't... I never... I try never to mention in these environments who I support. <laughs> I know. Um, don't being from, don't being from Milton Keynes, it's... Uh, yeah, you, you can choose anybody. I'm just going to say that. Yeah, that's uh, true. Yeah. Well, that's the thing as well. You're... you're from elsewhere aren't you? yeah 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 like so you're, you're sort of from my neck of the woods as well yeah so you know it's like there's not really well I mean, there's no can, one down there that's no really... wickham luton rushton no. northampton no. but yeah. you, want, you, want to, you want to support football don't you don't football for me was a really important thing but but it was really odd with football so as much as i probably started later than others I just took to it very, very quickly. So I remember the first time I joined a football club um, in Milton Keynes. And it was I mean, it was painful to say the least. I mean, I was so bad. They put me in every position going. And I remember just sitting in goal for, for a little while. And I mean, it, it was awful. So it looked like football. Day, but I went because my friends went. I had school friends that went there. Yeah. Uh, and I was like, right, I'll go with them. So fast forward a year. And I was scoring quite a lot. And then fast forward probably two or three years, then I was then getting offers to go and try out at different clubs and everything else. So everything for me happened really, really quickly. Mm -hmm. And I think because of that, because I was so young as well and, and, and there was now opportunity, whatever else, I sort of switched off a little bit. I wasn't, I wasn't, it wasn't like I was lazy, but because it didn't, I didn't enjoy it as much as I did other things. I wasn't as keen to go to training all the time. Like for me, I was seeing it in the, with the innocence of, of being a child. So it, it, I was never thinking, oh, I'm going to go on. I want to 
score a goal for England or whatever else and have do those sorts of wonderful things. Um, but I, it was just, I liked playing football, but it wasn't enough. So I, can you hear my son singing in the background? By the yeah, way? I like it. I like it. I've heard you've got a great voice on you as well, Greg. Oh, mine's terrible. No, I literally I can't sing a note. So, I mean, that's pretty bad up there, but yeah, mine's even worse. Um, anyway, so, so I, uh, I basically, I, I, I sort of went down that route, as I say, and, and it, because it was, it was, I found it relatively easy. I just didn't have the impetus to want to try hard, but there was something in going to a track and especially, I guess, because it's more of a summer sport, particularly, especially when you're younger and it's always warm and there's lots of people and everyone's quite friendly. I say warm, it's the UK, I mean, relatively warm, warmer than winter anyway. Um, and there was something about running on a track and turning up, putting the spikes on everything else that just, there was a spark with me with it. Mm. I wanted to, I wanted to do it. I wanted to try hard here. And I, when I first joined the athletics club, I was the fastest runner in the athletics club for my age group. And then a guy called Craig Pickering came along. Um, who most people remember Craig, again, went to the 2008 Olympics for that 100 meter runner was in the relay, etc. cetera. Um, Craig came along. And the one thing I always had is, is my hatred for losing. So I hated losing. So the pictures of me, I remember as a, a, we had a really good local football team and we went on a tour in Holland uh, and we played against like the Ajax youth team and all this sort of stuff. And we got knocked out of this, this tournament uh, in the semifinals. We went much further than anybody expected us to. It's just a small local club. We did really, really well. But it's like the picture, everybody like celebrating. Yeah, we did really well here. I'm the one on the end crying. <laughs> so it's like, I'm like a typical one. I was like 12 years old or whatever it was, crying because we'd lost. I hated losing. Yeah. Like for me, I, I went into sport and, and, and my sort of view of sport is to be the best you can possibly be and try to win. It wasn't just about making up numbers. It wasn't about going for the journey or going on holiday, or whatever else. I wanted to do it to win. So I found with athletics, once I, I moved from the 100 meters to the long jump, I went from being, say, the, the one of the fastest kids in bucks to then being top 10 in the UK at my age group in the long jump. And then sort of having a, probably a couple of years in and out of the sport, I, I sort of had a slightly rebellious teenage sort of 14, nice. 15, Everybody 15, needs that. Yeah, exactly. That's the other thing. There's a lot of pressure when, when you're a kid as well, especially yeah. when sort of I think other people probably at that point want you to do the sort of sport more than you do. You need to go and find yourself, etc. Yeah. Anyway, I stuck with it. And then all of a sudden at 18, I had this massive breakthrough and I went from being then a sort of nationally top 5, 10 British junior athlete to then becoming the world number one at my age. Um, and that and you was won the title. You won the British title that year? Won the, yeah, so I won the senior British title as well as yeah. a junior. Um, I won the European juniors, broke the British junior record that year as well. Yeah. Had the longest jump by a Brit of all age groups. And I was still a kid. And, and that for me then was that moment where you go, actually, this could potentially be my job. Yeah. And then things start to change. And, and actually, for, probably for the first couple of years of my early career, things changed for the worse. Um, uh, again, coaching situation, training loads etc meant that actually i probably went backwards from from being quite promising in that year that's i was actually going to say what how did you find that transition from junior to the senior competition was it well, quite a big example obviously yeah, it, it is. yeah no do you know what? It's, it's a funny old thing because in the uk as well in particular we are amazing at creating some of the best junior athletes in the world like we we go to world juniors and stuff and and you literally see brits all over the place absolutely cleaning up 
but then there was always a massive drop off. And, mm. and I, I think possibly the way things are in the UK, the way of the, the competition scene, et cetera, in the US, often they go to into from high school, obviously to collegiate system. They have thousands of people watching them. There's high pressure scenarios. They get used to that. There's a huge talent pool there as well, which I think is very, very useful. In the UK, it is different. So we see this drop off. Now, for me, it, it was a bit odd, actually, because I, I say I sort of had this quite quick rise to to the, the the sort of British junior team. So at 17, I wasn't making the team. At 18, all of a sudden, I was winning. Yeah. So I'd, within a year, I'd gone from not even on the team to then winning. And then the following year, I'm now a senior. I'm like 19-year-old senior. Mm-hmm. And I went to the European Senior Championships, managed to win a silver medal. Yeah, yeah. And there's a little bit of me going, oh, not as difficult as everybody's making yeah, out. I'm a badass at this. Three, three years ago, I was crap. Now I've just won like a senior medal. This is amazing. But then you, you get brought down to earth very, very quickly. Mm. And actually, th- those decisions in coaching and everything else, it, it, that then gave me such a such a strong understanding a few years later because basically I changed coaches. I then went into a professional setup, which was way too much for me. Like I was training pretty much twice every single day from training three times a week, Tuesday, Thursdays, and, and maybe a weekend day sometimes, to then training six days, double days most days, your prehab and stuff in the morning, your full track sessions in the evening. My body just said no. And then I mm. spent a period from after 2006 through to probably the start of 2009 just injured, just constantly injured. And I hated it. And my mental health took a, a, a bit of a beating. I considered quitting. So the start of 2008, I was sort of looking for a job because I just thought, oh, wow. look, I, you do, I mean, you don't earn an awful lot in mm. in the sport anyway i think i was mm. getting minimal funding so i was probably on ten thousand pounds a year plus a very small kit contract which i think was three thousand pounds a year so i was making about thirteen thousand pounds a year and i'm looking around going i could quite literally get myself a job in a fast food restaurant and make more money mm. than i can yeah. yeah and i wouldn't be as is in as much pain i wouldn't be as heartbroken as i constantly was at, at that point because i couldn't train couldn't compete etc um but again that team and that extended team, that, that was then a hugely important part of it because the mm. friendship group I had around me, family, et cetera, kept me motivated enough just to stick with it. Um, and then obviously, as I say, 2008, as I said earlier, that year didn't go particularly well for yeah. me. But actually, there were certain bits in there and then a deeper understanding that I had that I knew I have to make changes at some point to give myself the opportunity. So thankfully, when I you went to, When you went to your first games in 2008... Obviously, the experience, I, I had a very similar experience. I, I went to a Winter Games in 2006 um, and played in a dysfunctional team. Yeah. Outcomes didn't really work what I wanted, didn't really give me the platform that I wanted to then propel me into summer sports. But I, I felt that was that was key to, obviously, how I had success mm-hmm. at 2012 and 2016. But also, I had lots of takeaways around myself, my team, my expectations of what performance professionalism looks like when you when you went to uh beijing in 2008 what were your what were your takeaways from that obviously you were going through a really traumatic time with uh with your family and also like recovering from injuries but do you think there was there was things you took away from that and you kind of learned from it as well as um had that had the opportunity to kind of evaluate your performance and then move forwards with your sport as well yeah definitely i think probably what it showed me very quickly was actually 
what goes on in the world of the sport in the lead up to a major championships actually doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is you'll see certain athletes in whatever event you're doing or something else um, do something amazing. In my case, it might see somebody jump really far. A few people jump really far and you go, oh God, look, they're going to be the ones to beat. But actually in a major championships, the medals are up for grabs no matter who you are yeah. uh, because things change. And, and fundamentally, some people don't turn up, they, they get mm-hmm. injured, whatever else. And actually show me, because I, I never forget, so I, even though everything was going on with what was happening with my grand, I was, I was not dealing with it hugely well. I went to Crystal Palace in 2008, I think the week just after he died or so, um, or just as he was about to pass away, I can never remember. And I won the Crystal Palace um, Super Grand Prix. And that for me was a big deal. Crystal Palace back in the day was like, that was the meet. I used to go watch that as a kid and all of the superstars from around the world of track and field would go to Crystal Palace. Iconic track and the bowl and everything. It was sadly not being used at the moment, but that was a massive deal. And I remember I jumped 8.16 there and, and then to win the trials the week before, I think I jumped 8.20. Mm-hmm. In that Olympic final, and I'd made the final, but in that Olympic final, the bronze medal was won with 8.20. Mm-hmm. And a Cuban lad mm-hmm. that nobody expected to, to, to do anything comes out and wins that. And then the winner jumped 8.35, I believe it was, Evan Saladino, one of the guys who had been jumping monster jumps in the last couple mm. of years building up to that point. And in my head, I walked away from it. I mean, obviously, I was feeling very unwell and things hadn't been going well, generally, personally, I guess, in that way. But actually, I, I sort of looked at it and went, do you know what? What if? What if I hadn't have been mm. unwell? What if I'd had a proper training set up? What if I could have won myself an Olympic medal? Like, yeah. without question. And that, again, sort of, in a sort of weird roundabout way reinforces that belief system that I had within myself. So actually experiencing that Olympics and being heartbroken. I mean, I finished 10th. I was devastated, cried again after that and everything else, because it was the, the stress and the pressure of what, what was going on really got to me. And funny enough, about 36 hours after that Olympic final, I was then rushed back to the UK. I'd spent uh, a night in a Chinese hospital because I'd collapsed because um, the illness that, that, that sort of stricken me was so bad. Um, and I watched the rest of the Olympics from the sofa at home. <laughs> so, I, so I didn't even get to fully enjoy the 2008 Olympics. <laughs> so, I mean, it was, like, do, it was really difficult from that point of view. Do, do you think rivalries also have a, a mm. massive impact on um, you as a competitor? Because I know, obviously, yourself and uh, Chris Tomlinson had that. Yeah. That rivalry in that cycle moving up to 20, uh, 2012 yeah and do you think do you think having that and so close to home that one brought um a new focus to your event and also kind of because i don't know what your relationship with chris is like whether it's a positive or negative but i knew i knew and, and saw that there was like that rivalry well i knew when you were on the runway that you definitely didn't want to get beat by Chris. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. Um, <laughs> to put it really, lightly. Yeah, to, yeah, I mean, yeah, you're definitely not wrong. Now, you know what? I think, so first and foremost, yes, having homegrown mm. rivalries, I think, are first of all, very important. Yeah. Sadly, I don't think while me and Chris were jumping against each other, it was built up enough for, for, for people to tune in and watch. And I think probably meeting organizers in the UK had a great opportunity to build it up a, against the mm-hmm. pair of us. We were yeah. in a situation where he had been the British record holder, then I'd been the British record holder, then yeah. he was the British record holder, then we yeah. both held it simultaneously with the same jump. Um, so leading into the London 2012 Olympic Games, we both held it with the same distance. And I really feel like that could have been made sort of a, a bit bigger and a bit more interesting. Um, but obviously, 
it, it wasn't. Now, the, the difference was, and I think maybe the, the, the slight difference between the two of us at that point, yes, I wanted to beat Chris. Of course I did, because I wanted to beat everybody. But I saw, for me to, to, to go on and have the career that I wanted to have, I couldn't just think about beating British athletes. I was then looking at the world athletes and I was looking at what they were doing. I was thinking, I want to beat them. So in the earlier part, it was Dwight Phillips, who was a hugely influential long jumper for, for the period of, of sort of my younger years. Um, and then going forward, somebody I had an also good rivalry was Mitchell Watt, the Australian who finished second in the London 2012 Olympics. But I was looking at them and I was setting my sights on beating them. And that for me, I think gave me that edge if, if that makes sense, because I wasn't worried or obsessing about just trying to be the best in the UK. And Chris All just want to beat you, right? I, well, do you know what? No, there, there seems to be a lot. There, there was a lot of that. There was a lot of that. I think, yeah, and 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 that's how that's how it felt. Anyway, I mean, he'd probably say absolutely not. I didn't care about him in, in any way, shape, or form. I don't know. <laughs> But that's, that's how it went. And there, there was a scenario where I'd left that, because me and Chris trained together for a while. I'd left that training group. And I'll never forget it. The European champs in 2010, um, the coach who we'd both had, uh, it was on camera, because obviously sometimes the cameras are there. Um, and the camera goes in, and I think Chris was battling for a medal at that. But I think, I think he did come over a bronze medal in the end. Um, and the coach just says, bear in mind, I'm not even in this competition. He goes, you have to jump longer than Greg. And I'm, saying, oh, <laughs> I'm not in this competition. And, and that, that's where I think maybe that, yeah, that was, that was, I never, I'll just never forget it like on Twitter. Everybody was just messaging me. Have you just seen what's been said? Like, yes, I'm watching it. Um, yeah, that. but, um, but the, that was the thing for me. I say, I was all about just trying to be the best in the world. Yeah. Um, and I know. So, yeah, exactly. And, and that's the thing. Look, a good, a good rivalry. He's a great athlete. I mean, God, when I was mm. coming through, um, I, I remember I jumped in the, the indoor British Championships 2004. I managed to finish, finish third there. Um, or 2005, actually. 2005, sorry. And Chris won it, I think it was, a Nathan Morgan second or the Evo. And I just remember looking at him going, goodness me, like I'd love to be as good as these guys one day. Um, and then luckily I managed to push on and, and then, yeah, sort of, take it on a bit further really was it even sweeter then when you broke that long jump record you're like <laughs> yeah. Thanks, well, thanks, yeah thanks a lot guys thanks appreciate <laughs> it <laughs> you know what when i when i jumped 51 in in um california um first of all i knew because i just knew the way things were i, like, yeah. I knew people were going to try and it was such an elite jump as well, Greg. Like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> You're such a sterling. You're such a sterling, man. No, I, I love it. I absolutely love it. I, when I jumped it, um, basically, at that point, I was like, right, I sort of feel like I could go further. But I was like, do you know what? If I really, really catch one, I'll upset people so much. I'll just leave it. That's terrible that I was, I was thinking about what was going on. But again, in that competition... I think the reason I jumped the distance that I jumped on that day as well comes down to what I developed and what I was in the process of developing because we had in there Will Clay, the guy who finished third at the Olympics. We then had mm. one of the other new Americans, I can't remember his name now, um, who was starting to jump really well. And I think Will in that competition had jumped something like 835, um, which at that point was the British record. Then the other American went out to something like 840 or 838, something like that. And I was there with one of my best friends, uh, Jermaine Ollison, who, who we sort of still train together to this day. And Jay was there and he was just sort of going like, mate, you can't let these guys beat you. Like you have to do something, you have to do something. And bear in mind, I'm, on, I'm in their home turf, I'm in their yeah. back garden. And I was like, right, here we go. 
catch the big jump. And I was just like, that. thank you very much. I knew at that point with that jump, I was like, there's nobody currently jumping in the UK that can currently beat that record. Yeah. And I knew that would stand for a little while. Um, so I was, I was thrilled to finally cement myself as this standalone British record holder. That's a nice thing to have. It'll be broken at oh, some yeah. point. No, records are always broken. Yeah. Um, so I was more interested in medals, really. But to mm. actually have it and, and have it to myself, was, yeah, it was nice. <laughs> Go on, Rich. Um, what I want to, want to know is, do you know when you hit that, hit that jump mm. and you kind of, you go and this is sweet, and you're in flight. It's the kind of same feeling as as Ellen, obviously, when she she strikes the ball and she knows it's going top corner, and she's celebrating even before it's gone in in the back of the net. Same with me when I'm coming around the bend, and I'm like in flow, and I know I'm absolutely flying. Like I ran at at um, in London, and I did like twenty one six nine, and literally I finished at like the 300 meter mark. So hundred meters around the bend I'd gone. And yeah. I was like, holy crap, I'm flying. And that must be a good time. My coach and lady pooed his pants when he looked at the time and saw how fast I was running. What, what does it feel like for you when you smack that board and you like go, this is massive. Because mm. I, I, you can tell on your face and I've seen it a couple of times when I've watched like some of your, your, your stuff on YouTube, you've hit a good jump and you know before you've landed that it's massive. What's that yeah. feel like to you? Do you know what? Easy. And that's the easiest way of, of describing it, really, because all of a sudden, yeah. everything's lined up. Everything's in the right position. And those things that you've, you've trialed and, and run a thousand times, 10,000 times before, it's happening. And obviously, so much of, of all of what we do, or I have done previously now in my case, is, is, is muscle memory. So see, if a ball drops to you and you hit it and you hit it sweet, you know you've hit it sweet. But it's not yeah. the thought process isn't, okay, here comes the ball. I'm now going to try and hit this in the perfect point of the ball to get it into the top corner. Mm. It happens. You just do it. Mm. It's exactly the same. You're accelerating around the bend or whatever else. You're just in that flow state. Like you say, for me, it was exactly the same. And that, that would come through the run-up as well because the run-up you drill so many times. And I had check marks in my head as I was coming down the runway. So I'd accelerate for four, I'd transition for four, I'd be up for two, then I'm basically, I've got eight into the board, penultimate takeoff. Now, I know as I'm going through the different phases whether or not it's going to be a good jump already because I'm setting myself up. So if I've accelerated out really nicely, I've transitioned, so I'm getting a nice knee drive at this point, I'm holding it well, I can obviously the board's coming up, you're not conscious as such of the board, but it's obviously coming, your prep jump, nice flat foot, penultimate, strike the board, pop, and you just go. And it's just, it's this beautiful, wonderful feeling which was much harder to replicate when I got older as well because it just hurt. Creaky <laughs> <laughs> bones and knees and yeah. it, was, it was more, oh, as I'd go through the <laughs> yeah. um, Whereas in, the, in those moments where everything lined up and it was just, it was good, it just felt so easy. And the interesting thing would be, so exactly, so when I jumped, say, the 51 in California or jumped 41 when, when I won the World Championships in, in 15, or again, the 31 in what was not great conditions for us in London in, in 2012, those jumps didn't hurt half as much as the 814 jumps or the 820 mm, jumps, yeah, yeah. The yeah. jumps because everything was in a beautiful position. Now the recovery might've been slightly longer from the big ones because you've pushed your body to a place it's never been before, but the actual sensation of taking off, it just felt mm. good. And that's a really weird and addictive 
sensation yeah, as well it's addictive because you, yeah. you go like, i can go better yeah. i can go harder i can go yeah, stronger completely and i can it? yeah. it's like i can get this and, and and interestingly in in 2015 at the world championships probably people sort of regrets i have for retiring or whatever else. i don't have any regrets that like i was getting old um the, the, the fact of the matter was, there was well <laughs> no yeah, thing is about, like, i'm not 98 but the thing is we had these 19 20 year olds that started coming through that would just you just see it in their face it's just easy and for Mm -hmm. me i was waking up in the morning it was sort of taking 30 minutes until i could walk without pain and stuff and i was just Mm -hmm. i didn't i didn't i I don't think probably i had that edge like i did before because everything hurt really that that was the problem for me everything was hurting but in, in 2015 I went into that world championships and I was in such good shape. I'd never been in, in shape like it in my life. And we go down, I think it was round three of that final. So I jumped eight twenty nine in round two, which actually would have won it as well for me. But in round three, I had a marginal foul, probably a centimeter or so if that, which sailed me out to around eight sixty eight sixty five. And, wow. and it, so it's a foul. So it went out and I was like, all right, okay. And I remember Dan's fat. And it, I mean, bear in mind again, Dan's multiple Olympic champions, whatever else, but he was looking at me wide-eyed and he was like, I won't say the exact word. He was like, <laughs> why the, did you foul that jump? And I was like, <laughs> sure, Dan. But like, we obviously had a relationship with how we bounced off each other. I was like, don't worry, I'll catch one on the next one. The next one was the 841. And I knew at mm-hmm. that point that I'd won the competition. So what I did, because I was conscious, I had the Diamond League as well and I was leading the Diamond League that year. No, mm-hmm. Britain ever won a world championships, first of all, in the long jump. And they'd never won a long jump diamond league either. So I thought in my back of my head, I was something like, I don't want to pick up a little injury, a little niggle or whatever else from this. So I'll pull out. So I took four rounds of a world championships and pulled out wow. being in the greatest shape of my life. Now that my pro- my regret now, obviously, as I look back, is that I should have taken five and six because I possibly could have had my, my monster. Because I never believed that I caught mm-hmm. my, my monster jump. I really believed I could have put, put some something serious seriously out the not a world record or anything i don't believe it was anything like that but i genuinely think i could have jumped something massive um but i did go on and win the diamond league the following week as well so maybe i wouldn't have done that but mm. the one regret was not taking the, those last two jumps in the world championship mm-hmm. fight. okay let, let's talk about super saturday now it was an, it was an all right day. it was an all right day um <laughs> 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 like talk us yeah. about like explain your what it meant to be part of like london 2012 for you i, I forget what super saturday was actually it's a weird thing <laughs> i bet you've, ne- you've never spoken about it have you <laughs> no it, it, came, it came and went and yeah, nobody ever asked me about that afterwards um, oh god you know what like, it's it, it's such a strange thing and even to this day i remember after winning in london people would say to me so I think it was Steve Redgrave was one of the people who sort of said that you won't truly understand what you've done until you're long retired. And even mm-hmm. still to this day, it doesn't quite feel real mm-hmm. because for, for me going into that championships. And, and again, I think something that made me quite mentally resilient and, and meant that I was able to perform well was I looked at my, nearly every competition as an opportunity first and foremost, but I tried not to see it, for what other people externally would see it for. So for everybody going into the London Olympics, we're going, this is the London Olympics, the one opportunity in your lifetime and career to have a London Olympics. You're in your prime, you're in good shape, whatever else, you, you could go and do well. I saw it as, look, I've run in a straight line, jumped into a sandpit, 
10,000 times by that point or wherever it would, be, it would have been. Nothing changes. It's a runway, it's a sand pit, and it's my legs with a pair of spikes on the end of them. And I maintained that because I didn't want to get overwhelmed what was going on. Mm. Now, probably something that helped, we were kept in a bit of a bubble. So we, we were kept out in Portugal for the couple of weeks leading into the Olympics, training out there. We flew in, I think I flew in August the 1st. I then competed for the qualification August the 3rd. And then obviously Super Saturday, August the 4th, 2012 started. And going in, it, it's a strange thing again. I mean, I knew obviously Mo was going in expected to win. I knew Jess was, was expected to win. I myself expected to win. Nobody else did. Mm -hmm. I mean, like nobody had any idea who yeah. I was in, in the British team at that point. I mean, it was Not nice. Lanky ginger kid. Your training in. group did though. Remember, because obviously, like Scott, being a close friend of mine, he, he he said to me, "I've got a sneaking feeling Greg's going to win this." And I remember, <laughs> I remember, and I'm going, "What? That guy that was rude and boring, and arrogant, <laughs> that I saw in Stellenbosch." I'm like, "No chance." <laughs> oh, <laughs> I believe no, in you, Greg. Oh, I no, but it was it was a funny old thing. It was I. I knew going into, as I say, I had a good opportunity. And I genuinely, I just thought, this is mine to lose. Even though people in that competition had jumped further than me in their careers, whatever else, I just believed it would be mine. And, and I think, again, another thing that maybe helped me was the fact that going in, as I say, Jess and Mo were the sort of poster boy and girl of, of the Olympics from the point of view of track and field. And everybody expected them to win. Now, sort of a nice little anecdote as I was standing in the tunnel at the far end of the track waiting to be walked onto the track as you always see it with the, the flag and whatever I was saying long jump or whatever it would be 200 meters whatever it would be um, they flashed up a, a, on the big screen a picture of Jess at the warm-up track and the crowd went nuts like absolutely nuts and it was like oh my god can you imagine having that pressure mm. uh, before you've even stepped on the track everybody's already hung that medal around your neck and Jess and Mo, of course, they took that as like, absolute pros that they are. And it was very, very impressive to watch that with that pressure. But I then had this moment where I walk in, they sort of calmed down a little bit. They're now walking forward and again announced a men's long jump. And, and walking out, I, I sort of would, would generally try and wait to, to go to the back. And, and, and walking out, all of a sudden, as we come into this wonderful stadium, there's nothing else really going on at this point. We'll walk through and there's this ripple effect as the crowd sees two Brits, because both me and, and Chris made that final. They just saw the, the British jerseys. It, it was nothing else. They just saw us wearing our kit. And just this ripple of roaring went round the stadium. And I kid you not, for a brief moment, it took my breath away. I had a, a mm. tear in my eye. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I had to sort of refocus my head again because I was like, okay, you are in Olympic finals. Let's go for this. And you realised for a split second how massive it was mm. to have a home crowd shouting for you. Um, mm. But it, I had a job in hand. And I say I then reverted back to the thought process that I, mm. I was having. This is a runway. This is a long jump pit. Let's just go to business. Let's just do it. Because um, I've seen, look, I, I remember being in the Commonwealth Games 2010. This is the one time I've seen it more than anything else. It was a really talented long jumper called Chris Nofke, an Australian. Really lovely guy. Um, he's like a top male model and stuff like that. So he hasn't done too badly for himself. Um, but, but he uh, he went in, I'll never forget it. I remember having a chat with him. Because the one thing I always did with my competitors, I was never like, I'm here to beat you, blah, blah, blah. I was friendly with everyone because 
for me that wasn't what it was about I, I didn't i didn't feel a need to trash talk anybody because look i run down a, a runway mm. in a straight line none of these people are in my way i don't have to fight them to get to the, mm. the, the runway we're given all of us we all have the same time so some of my closest friends were other long jumpers but i remember talking to chris and him literally just as i've never seen an athlete as wide-eyed as he was going oh this, look at the big crowd look, all these people here i don't um i, I can't get it i can't do it and, I, and basically i watched him completely and utterly sort of implode mm. because of the, what was going on around him and this was a commonwealth games in india it wasn't even in australia and and he couldn't deal with it and, and that was where for me i never suffered with that i never looked around and thought isn't this terrible that there's 80,000 people or whatever it would be in a stadium? I looked around and went, I have the greatest job on earth. Yeah. <laughs> you just thrived from it almost. The world's oh, eyes are on you. No, completely. And, and look, and that's probably where that level of, and again, I don't think this is arrogance in any way. I think effectively, anybody in sport as well, you are, you're a performer. You are, I mean, if, if you were an actor, actress, whatever it would be, you'd be, you'd, you'd be some sort of thespian sort of, oh, I love people being around me, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. And it's exactly the same in sport. Like if you're good at it and you thrive at sport and you do well at it, you love the fact that people will cheer for you. Listen, yeah. I mean, score a goal and a whole stadium erupts for you. It's probably one of the greatest yeah. feelings on earth. And 100%. it's not like you score that goal and then go, Mate, oh, Alan, no, no, be quiet. Goals, man. I know, I know, but that's the thing I know. I mean, there's been <laughs> one or two in your career, to say the least. But exactly. So the thing, you wouldn't, you wouldn't, then, you wouldn't like, score a goal and then just go, oh, no, please, everybody, be quiet. Oh, goodness. Yeah, no. just sh- oh, please, <laughs> yeah. no, don't. Oh, I'm, very, I'm highly embarrassed. No, we all go out there because we love the fact that yeah. people yeah. for us. And it's not just for that self satisfaction it's also the joy that you realize you're bringing for those those people that have paid to come and watch mm. you you give them a memory and it's the it's the greatest feeling because the other thing is what people never see is they never see what we have all done to get to that point mm. so all of that training all that hard work the injuries the heartache yeah. that you, you felt at different times in your career nobody ever sees that because that's not that's not on bbc primetime eurosport whatever it'll be that's that's inside you you've gone through that so then when mm. you have those opportunities that's exactly what they are Opp- opportunities do you, do you enjoy the um you know when like like facebook have like the memories do you, oh, yeah, do you yeah. enjoy seeing some of those like some of the, some of the pictures that pop up and uh, <laughs> I, I noticed that i think it was yesterday was the anniversary of the parade and how crazy was that? The parade was like one of the craziest mm, things that was to win. And Sorry. then to be in that parade, I remember like Trafalgar Square and I literally, like, I'm glad I had like dark, dark shorts on. I didn't <laughs> weed myself. And it was like, what? I don't, I've never seen so many people. Oh, that, that was crazy. Get your guns out. I was saying, we didn't, even, I, we didn't even win as a football team, but it was insane. Oh, it's the greatest thing, wasn't it? I mean, was it a oh. million people lying the streets? Oh, yeah. ridiculous! I remember, I remember when we finally went went down the, um, towards Buckingham Palace, actually. And one of my good friends, Lawrence Clark, who finished fourth in the hurdles and uh, at, at the London Games, he sent me a picture. It was me and him standing um, with sort of everybody then talking. It's this beautiful picture. Uh, I think it was maybe David Cameron or something at that point. It was having like sort of dressing the crowd. <laughs> We're just sort of standing just just to, just behind him to his left. What are you going to do your David Cameron impression then? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was going to say something really inappropriate then, but I won't. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that, but no, those moments, like, look, and for all of us, look, I don't think anybody goes into sport because they want to have moments no. of 
people screaming your names or getting postage stamps, whatever else. You're going because you love sport. Like, I love sport. I, that's why I wanted to do sport. And then when you have these things like parades in London, bloody statue, whatever it will be, they are the most incredible feelings and sort of I, I still struggle to understand them really those feelings well because yeah. I do sport but I say I did sport because I loved sport I loved going for that process so I did I loved the crowds I loved all of that but I loved mm. being the best I could possibly be you yeah. often forget how much of an impact that has on other people's lives and actually the the positive effect you can have on people just by turning up and doing well and, and that's always where I, I believe personally, that as, as anybody in, in the world of sport, you, you have a platform that can genuinely help people and you really can have a positive impact on people's lives. So that's why I've always been a, a huge advocate of, of via, say, social media, an interview, whatever it would be, of making sure that you are as nice as you can be and give everybody as much time as you possibly can be because you never know whose life you're 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 impacting in that way. we appreciate your time going now you're a star um one question i've got and it's uh have you ever been mistaken for somebody else <laughs> now, you know what you know i've asked this don't you <laughs> i'm not i'm not just friends gets mistaken to be you or uh, quite a lot doesn't it is this you in Ewan, yeah. <laughs> so, Ewan, Ewan, and, and whenever I get a, a guest on, I go, oh, I've got your dirt on Greg that I can kind of bring up. And he went, do you know what really annoys me? He's really annoying. He's a really nice guy. I've got no dirt on him. But what, what annoys me, I was going to say the P word then, what annoys me is that I've got about 20 different stories where people have, like, hugged him and said, oh, <laughs> great long jumper, you're the best. And that moment, that super Saturday moment, so, have you ever been <laughs> mistaken oh, for mistaken for Oscar Pistorius a couple oh, of times? <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. that. Good God, um, I know. And and have you though? Yeah, well, do you know what? So I used to get called Baby Ewan. So before, like, I, I, <laughs> oh, wow. I used to be called Baby Ewan. So Christian Malcolm started that actually. Um, so I was referred to as Baby Ewan. So yeah, in my early years, yeah, Ewan. But then, what was I found? utterly hilarious after the london games um there was like a people would always be sending say photos or whatever else to sign and i had about four or five come through to me with the picture of ed clancy on it the the cyclist yeah, yeah, yeah. basically it's just ginger that's all it is we, we, we <laughs> has ginger hair and i'll get it and it would literally be like please could you and the thing is as well you can sort of see in some of them there's a velodrome in the background so i'm sort of going I, I don't know how you're getting this. Like, <laughs> so they'd be, they'd be with other pictures. It might be, say, a picture of me jumping in the air, and then there'd be one of Ed Clancy holding a medal. Mm. And it, it'd be like, and at times you just, oh, what do you do? You can't turn around and go, no, you're wrong. You just sign them and send them back. Or if they're autograph hunters that you meet, a thing, you, you sign them and, and do that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, so Ed, and most people, Ginger, I mean, God, if I ever do sort of after dinner speaking, generally I stand up there and my opening line is, I realise you saw a ginger person out there. No, I'm not Ron Weasley. You have to say <laughs> <laughs> People say, like, oh, is that so-and-so? Oh, actually, one other one I've had, which was awful, um, where it was quite embarrassing, actually. I... <laughs> this is go bad. On. Go, go, go. So, so was, um, uh, Ronan Keaton used to do a thing called the Emeralds and Ivy Ball in memory of his, of his mum, which is a lovely thing. So I, I used to go every year to that. Um, 
and obviously it's quite it's really nice you have lots of like you have lots of like really big names go so i was like this is an incredible thing to go to I get to meet people and whatever else anyway i'm i'm at i'm at that i think this is just after 2012 or maybe in 2013 something like this a guy comes over and he goes i'm really really big fan um and i've got somebody on my table who would love to meet you and then i was like Oh, oh yeah, of course. And I'm like quite new to it at that point as well. Like, I mean, it's not long after London, so I was embarrassed by most things anyway. And I was like, oh right, yeah. And I, I sort of said to the guy, I was like, are you sure it's me though? You, sh- you sh- <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We've been talking about you for ages on the on on our table. I was like, fine, yeah. And like everybody's sitting at this thing. I like walk through the centre of the whole thing. It's like the centre table. And as I get closer, I see this woman. It's sort of tightened up, straightened up, and <laughs> I'm a little bit wide-eyed. And the guy's walking out, and he's gone like. Here he is. No. And they're all, like, everybody's silent. And I'm like the only person in this bloody room standing. There's loads of people there. And they're just like, you're not Wes Brown. I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> was like, no, oh, wow. no, no, I'm not, I'm not oh, Wes Brown. No, no, no. And he literally just went, oh, really sorry, mate. And just went and sat down. And so I just sort of, <gasps> Okay, yeah, I just walked back to the table. That's probably the most embarrassing. Yeah, one. that's savage, that one. Yeah, that was quite harsh. Yeah, so that's the worst one. So, yeah, so you and when I was younger, Ed Clancy just after, and then, yeah, Wes Brown, which I still to this day don't quite understand. Wowzers. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. <laughs> that Wes Brown one makes me laugh. <laughs> oh, uh, God. Can, yeah. can you talk to us a little bit about, like, your decision your, to, to retire? Was that a big decision of yours? Like, was it, like, a real, like, heart-crushing type of decision? Yes and no. I, I think for me, as, as I sort of say, so, so the Rio Olympics were a really difficult thing for me to sort of accept straight after. And, and mm. I, I went in there fully looking to retain my title because I fully believed I could yeah. retain my title. Um, and then while training in Arizona, I had a small groin tear um, about two, three weeks beforehand, which then went... From me again, I was in as good a shape as I had been in 2015. So I was really excited about what I was going to do there to then only being able to train every third or fourth day for the next few weeks going in. Mm. So finishing third, I know, look, people turn around and go, oh, yeah, but you still got a medal. Like just to go to Olympics is a great thing. But like I touched on earlier, for me, it was always about winning. And I believed I could have. And I think I, and even to this day, I still believe I could have yeah. been a double Olympic champion. Um, and and that's that's a massive thing. So. 2016, finishing that was difficult. Um, I was sort of recovered again. I went into 2017 and things started really, really well. I was in, a, again, got myself back into really good shape. And then I, I, something just really odd happened with my ankle. All of a sudden, I, I was in Arizona training where I always trained. And I suddenly mm. had just like a really intense pain in my ankle. Woke up one morning with it, no understanding where it come from. Yeah. Trained through it a little bit. When I got back to the UK, we scanned it. Um, and at first nobody could see anything and I was in so much pain and nobody could see anything. And for a few months, everybody was scanning it, whatever. Anyway, 2017 was a bit of a heartbreak for me as well because the, the year became a write-off. Um, I had to pull out of the world championships. I, so I couldn't retain that title either, even though I believe I could have done. Um, so I, what was happening was I was going back to where I was at the start of my career, where I was injured a lot. Um, the end of 17 they then finally discovered that i'd had quite a nasty cartilage injury through the center of my ankle which they operated on they removed the cartilage they they created the micro fracture so drilled all the bone to try and help it it heal 
basically that's a big one yeah yeah it it was and and look the surgeon said to me at the time this may not work Mm. Um, this might this might be the potentially well the beginning anyway it didn't work um so i went into the start of 2018 i was trying to train i went on a training trip i remember to dubai for a few weeks to just get some heat and really try and get my head into the into the game again i came back Funny enough, I won the, the British Indoor Championships that year um, off of not a lot, and I was in quite a lot of pain. I was a bit heavier than I should have been because I couldn't train as much. So mm. I got weight very easily. Like that, That's definitely something I'm good at. Um, I'm, I'm, <laughs> yeah. I've stopped. I, I become a big, a big chap. Um, so, yeah, so basically I, I then went back to America again. I saw mm. my coach for a few weeks. I was working out with a physio I knew well out there as well. And, and we did sort of a, a maybe a two-month training camp out there to, just to see, give it every opportunity. Mm-hmm. By the end of that training camp, I was in as much pain as I was at the beginning of the training camp. And mm-hmm. I sort of flew home. I remember it was, what, May time. And I was on a train coming out of London. I'd just done an event in London. I was on the train. And I was texting Dan. Dan was back in Texas. And, and my coach at the time was saying, and, and I just sort of said, Dan, look, I think maybe – it's time. Mm. And one thing Dan had always told me during our time together is he'd only had to ever tell a few of his athletes that he thinks that they need to retire. He said generally most of his athletes knew when the game was up yeah. and they would make that decision. And his response, and it was a lovely response, but it, the crux of his response was after spending the time that we just spent together in America, I see that you get so much joy out of being around your family. I think that's probably the right thing mm. to do. And for him to confirm it, I just sort of said, okay, fine, good. Mm. So I knew in my head I was going to retire that year. I hadn't told anybody else about it. So I, I, I did a couple of competitions. I think I jumped in, um, I jumped two in Germany, I think it was. It didn't go particularly well. I jumped okay. I jumped in a, again in Germany, again, a place called Dessau, um, which was a nice, nice meet, a meet I'd always wanted to do. So I was sort of picking the competitions I wanted to do. And I remember we was in Dessau and, um, the British meeting organizer um, was a bit like, oh yeah, uh, what's, <laughs> this is terrible. Wasn't, wasn't going to offer me a great deal to come and jump that year. And I went, well, how about I retire now? It's my retirement. And he was like, all right, yeah, fine. So we turned <laughs> up there. Um, uh, so I, I sort I sort of did it. Um, well, but the thing is I had to do it as well. And, and I'd been putting it off mm. and I thought, well, do you know what? Look, I'll give it to the British meet because it's, it's the it's British meet. That, that means, they'll care a bit more as well, <laughs> which is true. But yeah, I mean, like, that, that's, that was the way it sort of was for me. It's um, great for you as well, isn't it, to finish on home soil? Mm. Well, completely. And, and look, I, I knew I was getting older. My relevance was starting to, to diminish slightly as well because it had been a few on, years right. since I'd No, but I mean, look, look, there was new kids coming through. I couldn't, I just couldn't compete anymore. That was a thing. My, my mm. ankle was too damaged to, to compete. And I didn't want to be that old, that sort of old guy down out there finishing last all the competitions going, yeah. do you remember when I was great? Because people <laughs> don't know we forgot. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to be in control. Wow. <laughs> so I wanted to be in control. And I had the opportunity to be in control. So I, yeah. I literally got to go, hey, look, this is when I'm retiring. I'll retire in the UK. Um, I, I went through to um, Newcastle, jumped in a street event, which were my favorite events mm. to do. Um, and I got to say goodbye. So as much as it was, it was hard, um, mm. it was, I knew it was the right thing to do, but equally what I then did, as soon as I'd made that decision with Dan, I'd already been putting in the work to have 
a career post athletics, but I mm. then just accelerated that slightly. So I spoke to Eurosport um, and then they offered me a job. So things like yeah. that, I made sure by the time I retired, I had things in place nice. so yeah. I knew what I was going to do. And then when I took that final jump in, in Newcastle, I, I, I mean, you're just saying that just sort of brings me back there a little bit. And I don't really, I haven't really thought about it very much. I, started, I, I sort of had a bit of a tear at the end of the runway um, because I knew that would be the last time I would jump, jump in angry mm. like for, for in my entire career. And it had been such a such an interesting career, the way it had gone from everybody thinking it would never happen to it then happening, for it then happening a lot, yeah. to then dropping off again. I'd sort of I'd gone full circle. circle yeah. I wonder if it's the same tear that you had when you were playing football in that picture. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. I bet you didn't realise at that point that you're going to have lots of success. No, of course not. And look, look, listen. If if anybody at that age, to that little boy who was crying because he had not managed to win, I think we lost three mm. two um, in that in that semi final against that very good Dutch team that we were playing. If you would have said, "Look, you're going to go on and you're going to win five major titles and have eight major medals or whatever it is in your career, you're going to go to three Olympics, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. I mean, mm-hmm. I'd have absolutely bit your arm off for yeah. it. And, and it was one of the it, iconic moments in British sport. I think yeah, it was the iconic moments of British sport. Oh, God, mm-hmm. yeah, listen, August the 4th. I, 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 yeah, I sort of get it a bit now, I guess, if you like. But, yeah, it's to be considered – look, some people have, have it won a, a, a sort of – not an award, like an – Virtual award, if you like, have been. I'll, I'll give you a award if you want. The greatest sporting moment in British history. Yeah. yeah. And you got to think, like '66 is obviously considered mm. one of the, the greatest for a long time, and of course, we win a World Cup. I mean, football is the sport, really. So to have an opportunity to even be considered, yeah, in, to be compared to something like that, yeah. is unbelievable. Mm. And, and, and for me, that. Yeah, that, that's something that I think I'll never quite be able to grasp. That, that's, yeah. That's it's a great special. moment to, to finish on. We, uh, I wanted to talk about your chickens because my missus won't let me have any. They are so cute, chicken. by the way. Oh, I, I my tell you gosh. What, I've, um, if, do you guys want, do you need a cockerel? <laughs> I heard you keep saying anyone, anyone? Mate, I want chicken. I want chickens. You need to be talking to my missus and say how I know they are a little bit dirty, but no, they're not, no, no, they're good. They're good, honestly. And and they don't need as much. They, I mean, we just let them roam free in the garden because they can, but I mean, they don't, they, they don't need loads and loads of space. Um, and you, what you what you both need more than anything else is one of my cockerels, that's for sure. <laughs> oh, I, I really. I really need to get rid of a few cockroaches. So. Do they do they work well with cats? Are they all right with cats? Yeah, no, they're fine, absolutely fine. Yeah, the cats okay. are fine. Just got to get them, all right. get rid of them. I'll have, you, uh, I'll have them all then. Oh, I'm fine. No, I'm here. I'm here. The, the thing is, I will be turning up at your house now. With <laughs> I'll throw a few chickens in there as well. Oh, please, yeah. Uh, no, they are good. Well, these so we always. Look, I, I, I'm retired. I get to enjoy those sorts mm. of things now. And yeah. I, and I, I love the chickens. I love the animals. It's a bit of a farm here. We've got ducks as well and the cats and dogs and whatever else. So it's, I just um, want a chicken. You just want one chicken. I was just getting two. The thing is as well, there are a lot of ex-battery hens that need rehoming. So if you ever want to do that and give them a, a good sort of end to their life, they'll still last oh, a few years and lay loads of eggs. Um, or if you want to rehome my cockerels, you're more than <laughs> 
I think that's a good. Man. I think that's a good place to end. No, thank you yeah. so much for coming on the podcast, Greg. It's yeah, been amazing to chat with and you. To finish, and, we've got yeah, go ten on. questions. Oh, yeah. ten questions. Yeah. Oh, God, ten questions. Go on, then, okay. Alan. The first are one. Quick, are they quick fire? Or yeah, quick fire. Yeah. Quick fire. All okay. right. So the first one is track or ball. Track. I have to say track. <laughs> it takes more of my life up now. I tell you what. Checking for transfers and whatever else is going on at this time. <laughs> very for what teams up, Greg? I can't, I can't say. <laughs> <laughs> What's your greatest accomplishment in your life? Do you know what? Actually, think wisely. It's it's my children for sure. Mm. Um, yeah, look, look <laughs> athletics is a great thing. Winning gold medals and that sort of stuff is a great thing. But I'd like to be remembered for hopefully raising some great children and, and other things in, yeah. in 60 years time. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. Right. Do you believe in ghosts? <sighs> no, nah, not really. Yeah. Good answer. <laughs> <laughs> what's, the, what's the biggest risk you've taken? Oh, there's been so many over the years. Um, Stupid ones. Stupid risks was car surfing when I was a teenager. That's that's that's. I mean, that's just danger. Um, do you know what? It's it's really. In, I'm sorry. I know this is quick fire. Because I did a podcast with, with Dan, my coach, again the other day uh, in America, and Donovan Bailey again, and somebody else. Um, and what what the way Dan described me and Donovan, who both managed to win Olympic gold medals, was that we were risk takers. And that's what he said. And he said, yeah. the way you can sum up our careers that we were risk takers, we were willing to put our bodies on the line or willing to follow a path because we knew or we, mm. well, we, we believed that it could take something. So um, I guess the biggest risk was probably most days in my career, um, buying into a philosophy mm. and a belief system that you never know, really. You believe it, but you never know. Um, yeah. And I risked it all regularly in order yeah. to try and succeed. With the rewards, yeah. Okay, we've established that you can't sing. Is that is that right? <laughs> okay, what what's your like go to like karaoke song? Well, this is the way. That, do you know what? On my Wikipedia for a long time, it said loves karaoke. I have never <laughs> in my life been to a karaoke. Oh no, no, that's a lie. I've been to a karaoke bar once, which was a weird, I, I, long story. I'm not going to get to. It's weird though. Um, I've never sung karaoke in my life. I would like to give it a go, but I've never ever sung. What karaoke. would you be? Wow. What would you sing? Yeah. What, what would you do? I don't know. This is. I'll tell thing. you. I'll tell you what I've heard you sing though. Oh, At the good. boxing, I've heard you sing "Sweet Caroline." <laughs> <laughs> is, that, is that a lie or not? You know, that's, right. that, that's a bit. That's. I feel that's a bit different when you when there's a big group of yeah. people and you're hidden um, <laughs> behind a, a boxing ring. Yeah, you can get away with it a lot more. There's never been a situation where I've taken a, a microphone and sang to other people. <laughs> um, oh, and yeah, I feel like that's not good for anybody if I ever did that. <laughs> when are you the happiest? Ooh. Do you know what? Nowadays, when the boys have calmed down a little bit and we just get to sit on the sofa and, and cuddle, and I don't care if they're watching Paw Patrol, Power Rangers, whatever it is, there's these lovely moments when they stop moving, which is rare because they are the most rambunctious children that ever lived. But when they just sit there and you can snuggle together I absolutely love that now. Like mm. it's there, there's something so incredibly special mm. about that, which I love. Silliest thing you've ever got upset about? <laughs> oh dear! I think there's a period in my life where I get upset about most things. To be honest, it's quite fun. <laughs> um, 
Oh, that's a that's a really good. I don't think I've ever been asked that before, and I like that. That's really good. Um, uh, that's so hard to 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 answer as well. I I'm not actually sure, but there will be lots of. I'm desperately trying to wrap my brains now. Thing is, when you're tired, you get silly, you get really annoyed mm -hmm. about really daft things. Um, yeah. I mean, like yesterday, I, yesterday I was very tired actually, and I. I'd left the dishwasher door open and then I walked into it and shinned it and it was clearly oh. the, dish, the dishwasher's yeah, fault. Yeah, obviously. I was furious with that dishwasher pretty much until today. Yeah. <laughs> 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 it's, yeah, it's, yeah, silly. I, I mean, very silly things will, will upset me at times, yeah. Mm. Still. Uh, where do you see yourself in the next 10 years? Or in 10 years' time, where do you see yourself? That's a really good question as well. Um, uh, well, we, me, and, me and Susie have talked about potentially moving to America. So mm. um, maybe, yeah, we have said in 10 years' time. But, uh, yeah, do you know, I've not really thought of anything else apart from that. So probably be in America, mm. it'll be warm. Um, I'll be a lot more relaxed. Donald Trump's not in, in uh, presidential. Yeah, as, long, as, long, as long as there's not some absolute nutter leading <laughs> the world. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, yeah, that, that's, and do you know what, I think, I've got aspirations of, of things away from, say, TV, sport, and whatever else, which yeah, yeah. is mm. things that I'm in the process of starting as well that I, I would like to, to be successful. Um, so it'd be a quieter life in 10 years' time, I'll say. Nice. How would your friends describe you? Depends which friend you're asking. <laughs> the nice ones? <laughs> um, the nice ones, I'd like to think, I'd like to think they'd see me as quite loyal helpful and when you i don't have many friends this sounds really sad but it's not it's basically i i i have i have like a really close select mm. few people who i spend a lot of time with yeah um and generally if you if you're in that circle and generally people come i've never i don't have in the last 10 years anybody leave the circle if you come in i'm there for you and i'll do whatever yeah. Yeah. I'm, i'd like to think i'm a very loyal friend in that way yeah. and i'll help as much as i can to everybody and anybody um especially in that group so i'd like yeah. to think they would say that about me they probably maybe that's just me just i think that they all think i'm an absolute <laughs> ass maybe i don't yeah, know might be, yeah. you'll have to ask <laughs> <I'm a douchebag. laughs> <laughs> and the last one um so what's your greatest fear Oof. um do you know what and, and again, I, I talk about my children a lot, and, and I think it's just because for me, that is the most important thing now. And, and the, the fear from my point of view would be my children growing up and not, I don't know, not, not looking back at, at their, say, their childhood, etc., with with great love, enjoyment and everything mm -hmm. else. I, I want to make sure that what I can provide for my kids now forevermore instills a level of respect love and happiness that they mm. can then take forward into their lives when they move on and and, and have their own families etc but I, me and Susie talked about this as well we've always said what we'd love is that every Christmas doesn't matter how big the family gets everybody comes back to our house everybody yeah. loves to spend time with us um kids grandkids whatever it would be it's always come back to ours and and have a lovely Christmas and that's my hope is that yeah and my biggest fear would be that they didn't they didn't find their childhood mm. the most magical thing Awesome. No, thanks, Greg. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much. Time with me and Alan. No, I loved and, it. Thank you so much for having me. Genuinely, like, it's, it's really good fun. And 
bloody good questions at the end there. Like that's, <laughs> that, yeah, that's difficult. Yeah, there it is. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, I'll give it. I'll give it to him. They, he did think up those questions. To be fair. Oh, you did well. You smashed it. You well. <laughs> no, thank you so much. It's <laughs> been yeah, awesome pleasure. chatting with you. Well, uh, I've, I've, what, what time are we on now? Oh, I've got to go on the school run in a minute, so I'll go get yeah. my leg. Well, yeah, enjoy. Uh, well, thank you ever so much. Look, genuine pleasure. I'll um, hopefully I'll see you both soon. Yeah. Well, yeah. once we get past this madness, anyway. So we could talk to Greg for hours. Um, he's got uh, an insightful journey into uh, success and failure through not just athletics, but through other sports. And we didn't even talk about his his sponsorship ordeals uh, with not getting sponsorship after his mm. great success or his, or his love for chickens. I'm, I'm after <laughs> some chickens as well, but unfortunately <laughs> at home where I live, I'm not sure the neighbours would want any chickens. But um, yeah, for me, the, the podcast was, with, with Greg really got me thinking about how I can improve as an athlete. And I know when we talk about uh, what's important, it, a lot of it is about that consistency and being um, on top of your game for not just now, but obviously thinking about the future as well. Definitely. I think, you know, we are both kind of high-performing athletes. We, we do understand the pressures, but I think it was a really great insight into kind of Greg's story about how, he consistently performed at major championships um and i think that was a really interesting one when we we were talking about him thriving under pressure you know if he's got fellow athletes kind of jumping a centimeter bigger than his previous jump he was like i'm going to jump two centimeters bigger i think that was really interesting i think it was really insightful that he that mindset um of thriving under pressure and i know he's had this this tag of being a lucky athlete being uh, the top of his game for so long means that there's no luck involved. It was all about his determination to be the best. And he then obviously looked within his coaching network mm. to become uh, the best for a generation, really. You look back at his results, he's been consist consistently either close to that world record or at least number one in the world. Yeah, I think when he speaks about his coach, Dan, and, you know, what he went into kind of the conversations they had, talking about surrounding himself with the best people to to allow him to thrive. I think that was a really, you know, interesting conversation, really. And definitely one that I'm assuming young athletes listening to this podcast will really be uh, find some really good insights into, you know, finding that right coach um, who can really make you thrive under pressure thrive to make you win things as well and I think that was a, a really great conversation that we had with him yeah getting getting tools from the podcast mm -hmm. would be would be something that uh, I'm sure I'm sure the listeners and viewers will will listen and watch again and again to just kind of really pick out those those key points that I know I'm I'm thinking about how I can how I can put some of those in my program and then hopefully be more consistent with not just my training but competition as well and uh, and the importance of of winning. What what does winning look like, and how does winning feel? Greg talked uh, a lot about the twenty twelve um, mm. uh, environment and how he he already kind of knew what that was going to feel like, and he got on that run runway and just delivered his best performance. Yeah, I think you talk about that toolbox, and he spoke about that a lot. You know, with his coach, that he was really kind of delving into the knowledge of his coach. Um, you know, and 
and all the different tools that he needed to to really uh, be the best athlete he could possibly be. And I think that's an, another great tool for, for young athletes to take away from this podcast. And that's what we wanted from this podcast is not only for, for us to learn and develop and maybe use in our own sport, but for people to take away things, you know, even young athletes or anyone in general to yeah, really come away Yeah, and implement them into their life. Definitely. And I think that's a, an amazing thing to come out of this Greg one, hopefully. And we're really kind of excited for everyone to, you know, I'm looking to forward to, to the next one. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, no, we're, we're, we're really thankful for, for everyone that's, that's listened so far to Track and Ball podcasts. If you haven't already, make sure you check out our launch and also the Becky Adlington uh, podcast episode as well on wherever you find your podcast. Make sure you su- subscribe um, to that and also our YouTube channel. Cross comes in, White with the header. And here comes Whitehead. It's gold for Great Britain.